0: I carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head.
1: You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system.
0: Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're
1: in.
2: We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Bella Deschamps-Cook.
1: And I'm Blake Subchak. We're in for a treat today as a senior threat intelligence analyst, Selena Larson, joins us from Proofpoint.
2: Selena will be discussing all sorts of cybercriminal groups and APTs.
1: Bella, why are there APTs but no BPTs or CPTs?
2: Like is this a joke?
1: Because they ran out of TTPs?
2: This is terrible. You're banned from making jokes on the podcast. Let's hurry up and hear from <laughs> Selena.
1: But wait, first a word from our sponsor.
3: We're In is brought to you by SYNAC, the premier crowdsourced platform for on-demand security expertise. SYNAC delivers 24-7 pen testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of vetted and trusted researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. SYNAC gives businesses the best chance of finding every vulnerability that matters. Find out more at SYNAC.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K
2: dot So first of all, Selena, it is great to have you here. We're really excited to talk to you. Talking about the threat intel community, you once said that being kind is more important than being technically correct. I was wondering if you could sort of unpack that quote, give us a little context and kind of explain what you mean by that.
0: Yes. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Stoked to be here. Um, Second of all, great question. And I had forgotten that I said that, so I had to go. I had to go search myself on Twitter. I'm like, I I remember tweeting that. So in my opinion, the um, threat intelligence and cybersecurity community in general can be very opinionated and often um, snippy or maybe not very nice on the internet, especially when people write something or tweet something that someone disagrees with. In my opinion, uh, as an outsider kind of following these conversations, it creates a very toxic environment if the conversation and interactions aren't really nice, right? Like if we're trying to encourage people to come into this community, encourage people to speak up and share information and really recruit and bring in diverse people from different backgrounds with different experience levels, then I think it's really important to cultivate a community of inclusion, of kindness. And whether or not information is correct or incorrect, there's a way of communicating information um, or really just communicating anything in general that is positive and reinforces good vibes in the community. And I just think that, you know, the world in general needs more good vibes. And CTI and cybersecurity overall definitely needs more good vibes. So that was kind of one of my hot takes. I think Katie Nichols had tweeted something like, what are your hot takes? What are your complaints about the CTI community? And mine was like, everyone should just be (laughs) nice." I think like
2: I have, (laughs) uh, yeah, I have a background (laughs) in penetration testing. And one of the things that I like, one of the first, I think, lessons that I learned working as a pen tester, interacting with customers is that like, if you are not communicating with like empathy and kindness, no one's gonna hear what you're saying. And mm-hmm. and I think like that quote is really interesting to me because I think it, it goes beyond just the threat and tell community, of course, but it is so important in cybersecurity because we're talking about like, I don't know, sometimes uh, hurtful and difficult conversations. And and I think I don't know, it, it really spoke to me. I, I think I I I read that and was like, oh, I've I've been there, I've experienced this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: For sure. Yeah. I think you hit on a really important note that empathy is so important, right? Like in the industry that we work on at the end of this, it doesn't matter what the malware is, who the threat actor is. At the end of it, there is a person on the other side of the computer that is experiencing a crappy thing happening to them. And it's so important to be mindful of that and think about that even as we are, you know, focused on like malware or TTPs or whatever, but at the end of it, there's always a person.
1: Well, you talk about vibes. I do think it's so difficult sometimes in Twitter to reflect uh, that we are all people. I think sometimes people sort of hide behind anonymity and maybe take snipes at each other, and it's a little bit of a difficult mm-hmm. platform. That's why, honestly, it's so impressive that you're able to maintain such a positive Twitter presence. And I, you know, one thing <laughs> that I wanted to, wanted to pivot into threat intelligence a little bit from Twitter. I feel like it's such an important. Tool, You know, it's like, I've heard that many threat intelligence researchers, often Twitter is sort of the first place where they find out about some new thing happening, whatever it may be. Uh, I, Mm -hmm. I guess stepping back a sec, I was wondering if you could just help us understand how you keep track of the latest threats. And I feel like there are so many different threat actors flying around and names and just a vegetable soup of cybersecurity. How do you, how do you stay on top of it? Yes, that
0: is a great question. And to be honest, I don't stay on top of everything. It's impossible to. There's so much going on that one human being cannot be an expert on everything. (laughs) So certainly in my role at Proofpoint, I'm very focused on e-crime, cybercriminal threat actors. And then even within that scope, I'm much more focused it on um, targeted cybercrime. So while we do track, you know, like the the researchers and analysts on my team will track, for example, like Qbot, IceID, Emotet, these large uh, malware families. I try and keep up as best I can, right? Like I read public reporting, I follow researchers on Twitter, I'm in a variety of different information sharing slacks, but it's it is really a lot to. Um, to try and track and take in. And I think that knowing your limits and understanding like what do I need to know to do my job and to inform my customers, then you kind of focus on that and maybe deprioritize the rest. I think it's, it's naive to think that we could keep the pulse on everything. And um, certainly from, um, if, if you're thinking about it from um, a customer perspective, right? So if you are a recipient of threat intelligence, you kind of rely on whatever, you know, vendor, whatever people that you kind of follow to say, hey, you know, this is the stuff that you should care about. We've collected it and prioritized it for you and packaged it in this nice, you know, readable format. But yeah there is so much, and it is really hard and you know i I'm impressed by people who seem to like keep track of every single thing that goes on
1: I did want to ask uh you 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 mentioned a couple of specific names there i think emotech cubot uh do you have any any favorite and I'm putting favorite in quotes here because of course all of these malicious actors are bad uh mm-hmm. that you you know Favorite threat groups that you keep tabs on? Maybe the most intriguing or the most dangerous or some other thing that I'm not thinking of.
0: From my own personal perspective, one of my favorite actors is TA2722. This is an actor that regularly spoofs uh, Philippine government entities, whether that's the Department of Health or the Customs Department. And they send out emails to a small kind of a number of entities, but largely focused in East Asia, Europe, North America, um, lots of uh, manufacturing, food and bev, uh, shipping and logistics. But they uh, are regularly spoofing the Philippines government and they send malware. It's very much commodity malware, right? So it's nothing super tricky. Their TTPs aren't necessarily um, all that sophisticated. They sometimes switch it up with credential phishing, but I've been tracking this actor for, for a bit and I find them to be very interesting. Another actor that I think is pretty cool is TA558. It's a actor that targets hospitality and hotels, um, largely Portuguese, Spanish-speaking lures, and they have actually switched up their TTPs a ton, um, but they always kind of fall back on this theme of like reserva and reservations, and I'm trying to change my hotel booking, and uh, I think they're pretty fun. So both of those we've actually published um, details on through our blog, but I find these kind of... Oddball, uh, targeted cybercrime threat actors to be really fun to track.
1: Bella, do you have any any travel to Portugal booked or or Spanish speaking countries?
2: Currently, no. (laughs) I I wish (laughs) that, like, I'm going through my (laughs) mind right now. Like, what what emails have I like just mindlessly clicked related to like upcoming travel, upcoming whatever?
0: Well, yeah, it's really great. I mean, that's that's why I think it's kind of interesting. Like their lures, they have maintained it since twenty eighteen. This reserve theme because it's like, you know, it's it blends in with legitimate traffic. Like, what do you know the uh, hospitality industry usually receive? Like booking related emails and kind of like blend in. And you're like, all right, like I'm just gonna click on this. I expect this to to be relevant to my job. Um, but yeah, they're they're consistent um, in terms of their lures, but their TTPs change up quite a bit.
1: So when, when you say targeted, how targeted are we talking here? Is this like should I be worried, or is it casting a you know thousands of people, or just like a couple people that they want to go after? Does it I suppose it varies. Yeah,
0: it really varies, but we're talking like you know thousands of messages per campaign. Um, so it isn't necessarily targeted to individuals. Like if we're talking about like APT targeted, that is like you know they they tend to be very highly targeted to certain individuals for a uh, a, a specific purpose. Um, but if we're, if we're speaking about like um, industry targeted, like right, like so so in a specific industry, they will focus on that as opposed to in the. Um, very highly targeted, like four or five people type of target. So
2: you mentioned earlier, like when we were talking about kind of how you stay up to date and that there's an element of, you know, prioritizing things. And I'm wondering, how do you balance prioritization in terms of, you know, looking for things that are potentially most harmful or most negatively impactful versus like what we've just been talking about, the things that are most interesting to you or, you know, Like, what's the magic secret, like, you know, like formula for prioritizing things?
0: Um, I don't think there is a magic secret. So on threat research in in particular, we're very much um, told to do stuff that interests us. And to kind of follow our noses and follow our guts and find things that are very interesting. Certainly, you do have intelligence requirements from whoever your customer base is, right? So we obviously have to keep the pulse on a lot of the priority threat actors, right? So if it's QBOT, right, or TA-577, TA-570, um, certainly the ICE ID, um, the Emotets, like the big malware Um, campaigns that we see on a regular basis. Uh, Certainly initial access brokers, right? So you have a lot of very large crime threat actors that are distributing malware via email that could potentially lead to, for example, ransomware infections as they are um, sold or facilitated, uh, infections are sold or facilitated to other actors for follow-on exploitation. So we definitely want to make sure that we are covering down on those key threats. Um, But Their threat landscape is so big, so we are very much empowered to be like, what do you think is interesting? What is weird? Like, what is this malware doing that you've never seen before and why? And I think a lot of times you can proactively identify new threats that will become prevalent on the threat landscape if you are curious and if you are sort of um, given the ability and flexibility to, to kind of... Uh, I this is going to sound so funny because I'm quoting my yoga instructor, but like find what feels yes. good, you know, like <laughs> like find that um, and it'll kind of help you sort of navigate and prioritize um, in that direction. But, yeah, it's it's a mix of like intelligence requirements from your customers, um, certainly covering down on what is big in a threat landscape, but also making time to um, find and follow stuff that
1: you think is
0: most yeah, interesting. I love that
1: drawing cybersecurity lessons from the real world experiences, <laughs> whether it's <laughs> whether it's yoga, whether it's, you know, I, I feel like a lot of ideas come to us in those moments, you know, out on a run, perhaps. I, I did want to talk- All the time. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> I did want to talk about an episode of your Discarded podcast, which by the way, is a, a really helpful way to, for any listeners to stay on top of uh, a lot of the threats that we're talking about today. Uh, but there was a really interesting one that that definitely caught my attention where you talked about some APT threat actors posing as Mm -hmm. journalists. Uh, And and I know you discussed that with a few Proofpoint subject matter experts, but can you share a little bit more about what happened in that case and, and why threat actors are bothering to target journalists?
0: Yeah, so that was really fun research that was published by our APT Advanced Persistent Threat Team. So they focus on actors that are um, state-associated, sponsored by by a variety of different countries, for example, China, the uh, DPRK, Iran, Russia, et cetera. But that research was actually really fun because it looked at a bunch of different actors across the APT threat landscape. So one of the ones that I thought was pretty interesting, only because I have an unhealthy addiction to Twitter, like many journalists, um, was TA482. So this is an actor that um, targets uh, like Twitter and social media accounts. They're likely aligned with the Turkish state. They very much target um, social media. So that was really interesting. Um, There was a TA404, which is a a North Korean threat actor that was targeting US-based media with this. But that
1: TA wasn't found. Ta four oh four. Sorry. Oh, uh, sorry, sorry. Oh no! I had, to, I had to. jump in. I'm sorry. Please continue. It's just, just, just mute me.
0: You know what? I've never heard that joke before, and I have written, slash, tweeted, slash, talked about ta four oh four, and um, that was the first time that anyone has said this to me.
1: So thank <laughs> you. Don't, don't encourage. Don't it's, encourage me, Selena. It's
0: not often I hear a new pun. So <laughs> well done. Um. Yeah, so so this actor targeted U.S.-based media organizations with this sort of like job opportunity, very much phishing, um, um, benign conversation starter type of thing. And then we had um, some China-aligned APTs as well that we reported on, TA412, for example, uh, which is broadly more known as Zirconium. Um, and uh, throughout 21 and 20, 2022, we did see a lot of these campaigns that were kind of benign or including web bugs to um, essentially validate the targeted emails were active. And again, this was um, targeting uh, uh, a lot of U.S.-based journalists, um, certainly in political, national security, White House, privacy security space. Another one was TA453. This is, you know, publicly known or tracked as, uh, by other security organizations as Charming Kitten. This act is pretty interesting. We actually assess with high confidence that they support the Islamic Revolutionary Guard core intelligence collection efforts. And these examples that we shared in the reporting, they were actually posing as journalists, right? So we have both the targeting journalists for intelligence collection, as well as pretending to be journalists that were, um, in this case, targeting uh, journalists really around the world, but with a, a large focus on academics and policy experts that were working on Middle Eastern foreign affairs. So you have this really interesting theme, right, of journalism that is both you know an area of interest in intelligence collection but also a sort of masquerade that threat actors might adopt in order to gather information from additional ta- targets
2: i have to imagine that this particular threat was interesting to you because i know you have a background in cybersecurity and technology journalism was it like how did kind of learning about this how did it make you feel maybe reflecting on your background
0: i think it's interesting but not surprising Journalists have access to a lot of information, a lot of sources, because, you know, while the things that are published kind of represent the tip of the iceberg, there's also, you know, all of this non-public information that's just kind of under the surface that they have collected in the conversations that they've been having and the things that they know. Off the record. record. Yes, yes. On background even, right? So that doesn't always make it into the the publication. So you have a lot of, of you know, interesting conversations and things that, that journalists know, right? So from an intel- intelligence-gathering perspective, that definitely makes sense. From a posing-as-journalist perspective, that is, I is—I wouldn't necessarily say I was surprised, but I was definitely, you know, intrigued that they recognize that the persona of a journalist is compelling to a target to get them to talk or to get them to engage with something or to get them to click on something, Right. I mean, who doesn't want to be in the media, right? I mean, probably a lot of people
2: actually. (laughs) When you work in security, actually, I think your answer that changes,
0: (laughs) right? But like, say you're an academic and you just published something and you want people to read about it, you want to talk about it, right? It's like, oh, great, this like this. Pers- this journalist is interested in talking to me, so it's really that kind of rapport building and that trust building um, that could potentially uh, increase the likelihood of someone engaging with something malicious. So it's an interesting um, character, right, of of journalism, and it's not exclusive to a specific uh, subject either, right? Like we we really talked about all of the different targeting for, in the different subject areas, whether it's politics, cybersecurity, academia, you know, world news. Um, so it is, uh, I definitely recommend checking it out and it does kind of show the different ways that threat actors will socially engineer both, uh, intended recipients as well as pretend to be those journalists,
1: uh, in their activities. It's so fascinating. I just find that so pernicious. Also coming from a journalistic background, it just, <laughs> there's already been such an erosion of trust in media institutions and to have bad actors latch on to this persona and start targeting people either targeting journalists who already frankly let's be honest have enough to worry about these days or yeah. impersonating them i mean do you ever just sit back in your desk and go like this is you know outrageous and just shake your fist or what how do you navigate the uh, emotional side of some of this work <laughs>
0: Well, we talked about good vibes at the beginning of the podcast and nothing harsh is good vibes like threat actors. Um, true. And from from my perspective, so I don't actually work on tracking APT actors. I think that there are, for certainly like the journalist thing was very, you know, kind of rub. obviously rubbed me the wrong way, right? Like, oh my gosh, like this is like, per- I'm finding this personally offensive, right? Like my friends aren't journalists. Like yeah, this is like, like what the heck? But I have to say that the... Some of the threats that make me the most, like, upset and angry are very much, like, fraud-focused, um, business email compromise. Um, people use just really cruel things in their messages. Things like, um, you know, death threats. Things like, I know that you have illegal content on your computer. Um and I'm not going to describe what they say on this podcast. Um, And these very, like, just evil things that these actors will will say and write to people and to get them to try and send them money.
2: And, like, from what I've heard, a lot of the folks, and maybe you can tell me if this is correct, because I do not know a lot about this area, (laughs) but from what I've heard, the folks that often fall for this kind of stuff are folks that are, like, older or not familiar with technology. And, like, Mm -hmm. that to me... Is so heartbreaking imagining like my grandparents receiving this kind of email. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, so for sure, but I've gotten text messages from my friends, right? Like I'm in my 30s. I've had a girlfriend text me, be like, oh my gosh, some guy is saying that he has compromising photos of me. And if I don't send him this like Bitcoin, then you know, he's going to publish them and leak them. And it's like, oh yeah. and she, I mean, and she's like texting me, like freaking out being like, please tell me this is a scam. Right? Like, so it's not even that it's just sort of like uneducated or people that are not digital natives that are getting targeted or falling for this stuff. It's like people, it's just anywhere, right? Because fundamentally the point of social engineering, well, not the point, but one component of social engineering is to get your target to have a certain frame of mind so that they are increased the chances of engaging with the threat actor, clicking on something, sending them money, um, like downloading something bad, right? And and if they put you in a frame of mind that's scared or um, concerned or like, you know, afraid for yourself or your family, then the human response, right? Like your body's response or mental response is to be like, oh my gosh, I have to care about this. This is important. Like, how do I fix this? And oftentimes, right, you have the sort of like big bots, like, like, you know, like Q bot does thread hijacking, right? There's no sort of like emotion, like not a lot of emotional manipulation there, right? It's like, okay, we're going to pretend that this is coming from a trusted email and that you are the conversation that you already had. Um, And that's like uncool. But in my, in my opinion, the, the things that like make me the most mad are these really just malicious, evil messages that people try and send to people to get them it's mostly like fraud right like send them money um but we've seen for example um telephone oriented attack delivery we call them toads people being like did <laughs> you buy this if you didn't buy this call me and to like mm. to to oh, refute yeah. this like charge and then it's like okay oh no you didn't spend all this money like oh here like click on this and download this malware or give me remote control of your computer like it's very just i don't know it's just it's really gross it grosses me out
2: and i yeah, i guess i like i didn't <laughs> think about the fact that like even I think like sometimes I I like to imagine myself as very like able to recognize these types of issues because I work in cybersecurity, Mm -hmm. but like I'm thinking about it now and like there are definitely, and I won't admit to what they are, but there are definitely (laughs) things where like if someone said certain things to me, I don't know, like it would be really difficult to work, like quickly work through that emotional instant fear response and get Mm -hmm. to like, wait, 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 let me like logically pick this apart. Um, And like everyone has stuff like that.
1: I'll admit to one being a, uh, you know, being in cybersecurity still, but uh, I will say, you know, if somebody were to pray, and I know this happens on, for instance, natural disasters, Mm -hmm. you know, so my childhood home, Sanibel Island was hit hard by Hurricane Ian. And I think if if a carefully Crafted fishing message or new video in from you know from the Ian's devastation or whatever. I would have been very tempted to click on that at the time in the immediate aftermath when we're all just hungry for this information. Absolutely. You know, threat threat actors who who do that sort of thing. I'm with you, Selena. It is it is evil. I mean, you're up against some really no holds barred, leave everything up. you know, just just do whatever it takes to to get to your target. And it's really yeah, and the
0: losses that people suffer, like. Tons of thousands, millions of dollars, like like individual losses for these types of things. Um, sextortion is another one, right? These like love scams where they're like pretending to to, to fall in love with you and and saying all these things that you want to hear, and then just c- cutting and running and taking all your money. Like it's just you know there's there's different sort of like psychological behaviors that threat actors like show. Um, and I mean they're criminals, right? It's crime. They're, they're yeah. criminals. And it, it's, yeah. it's, it's like sometimes I'm like, you know, our, our, our BEC, our fraud um, researcher, I he sends me these things. I'm just like, how do you like every day these things? It's just like, oh, gosh, just really bums me out. And, and, and I think that, you know, that's part of why I do this job, right, is because like I want to be able to protect people from receiving those horrible things. And I want to make the space— better. And I want to make it better to exist online and be a human being with an email (laughs) that like, you know, you're not like not having to suffer these fools constantly. Like it just, oh uh, yeah. Some, some of the stuff I'm just like, oh,
2: why? (laughs) So we've talked about a lot of like different kind of examples of some of the, you know, online threats that you're seeing or that you have seen a lot of. Is there some sort of emerging threat that you see in cybersecurity that we should be thinking about? So I think benign conversations is something that more
0: and more threat actors are using. It seems benign, but it really isn't, right? Like it's coming from a place of malicious intent, but the actual content of the conversation itself doesn't have anything um, that's, that's outwardly... Um, explicitly malicious. We see that with um, I mentioned Toad threat actors, right? So they um, these emails are are in quotations benign, right? Because they don't have um, any uh, malicious links or attachments, but they do have this bad phone number, right? Like this is an indicator that's very clearly malicious, but um, it isn't anything like oh I should be you know cautious of this. For example, my mom's neighbor fell for one of these because she's like, I knew that I shouldn't click on a link. I knew I shouldn't click on an attachment, but it was a phone number. Like you're always told to call the number. Um, and I think that's something um, that's pretty interesting. We see it uh, increasingly with um, e-crime, crime actors too, where they'll try and start a conversation with the subject before sending something bad. Um, and this sort of builds trust. It increases the uh, social contract between the recipient and the sender
1: and increases the likelihood that they'll engage with something malicious. So how how do you fight something like that? I feel like you're almost doing battle with human psychology. And I (laughs) was
2: just thinking like we, especially lately, like we're in a pandemic. There are people that are like making friendships where their first and maybe only interactions are all happening online. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine like, how do you tell the difference? Yeah, I
0: mean, so that's the thing, right? Like we as a security community have basically have to educate people on the the tactics and techniques that these threat actors are using. Very similar to, for example, MFA, right? Like if we're telling people to use multi-factor authentication because the threat actors are trying to steal your password and if there is no second factor that they need to be using, then it's a lot easier to gain access to your account. And so we have basically trained people, be suspicious of things. Don't click on links. Don't click on attachments. Like, you know, and, and, and in response, the threat actors are like, okay, I have to set a baseline. Maybe I have to try a little bit harder to get somebody to engage with this. Um, BC actors do it as well. Like, oh, hey, I have a request. Can you ping me back? Like, you know, it's your boss. Can you Can you hit me back on this?
1: B-E-C, oh, sorry, referring email compromise. To Yeah.
0: Sorry. business
1: email compromise. So no it's problem. very much
0: like, you know, I have this thing. Can you like, can you give me a call? Can you, can you shoot me an email back? Um, and it's, and it's, you know, they're, they're res- in my opinion, right. They're responding to the growing um, education of the generic, you know, internet user base. And so I think it's, you know all on us as security practitioners to um, ensure that we're informing people about these um, new techniques that that their actors are using. and also like, I don't know, like platforms that are are like social platforms, um, email platforms, like, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of tools and technologies out there as well that have to kind of respond to and try and keep up with that. I know it's very much like playing whack-a-mole, but it's also, <laughs> also the same with playing whack-a-mole with domain registrations, right? Like, yeah. it's like very much like, it's always this constant like back and forth between like, oh, you know, the like people are are increasingly secure. So how do we respond to that? Like, how can we change our behavior? And it's it's like, I don't know. I think it's interesting from like a, like a psychological or sociological perspective of like the ecosystem changes in response to the organisms that are living in it. And I think that, you know, we're seeing we're seeing that a little bit with benign conversations. We're seeing that a little bit with macros, for example, like Microsoft blocking macros by default. That actors are like, oh, okay, you have to figure out what to do now. Like, what am I going to use uh, as an attachment instead of macros? Like, got to test out these new, like, um, TTPs to sort of bypass these security protections. So it's very much like a constantly evolving ecosystem that we have to just try our best <laughs> to, <laughs> to make people secure and aware
2: of. I want to draw a sort of like parallel between threat intelligence and pen testing. I think like a a sort of maybe critique, but also like an important thing that I've often seen in pen testing is this idea of like reporting or information being actionable. Like something that I've run into a lot is like in pen testing, when we're giving information to a customer or whoever, if we're not giving kind of like next steps or why this is important or, or what to do about it, it feels kind of pointless. Um, And I'm wondering, I I know that that's something that has been talked about with threat intelligence as well. And I'm wondering what your take is on like what makes threat intelligence information actionable? um, And is that important?
0: Yeah. So that's a great question. It 100% is very, very important. And it really depends on who the audience is, right? Like if threat intelligence is actionable because I can block All these indicators of compromise. Uh, I'm a SOC analyst. I can I can you know put this in and block it on my network. I took an action based on this report. It could potentially be from a you know uh, someone who who is on the business side, and they're like, I'm trying to grow our company. I'm thinking about opening an office in some country. Russia or something, right, like, for example. And, you know, I received this report that is talking about um, specific threats that are um, geopolitically focused, and this might change the business decision that I have to make for my organization. It really depends, like, being able to take action on something really depends on who the recipient of the information is. And that's why as intelligence analysts, if you are, you know, writing reports and distributing reports, you have to think about who is the audience of this? Who is going to be reading this? Like, if we're talking from a SOC analyst perspective, the geopolitical analysis is like, okay, that might be interesting to me, but how am I, like, how does that apply to me and my job if I am a network defender specifically for this organization, um, and so it it, it varies like and, and, and actionable is like such a vague word right like it's, I like I hate it and I love it because it's like yes it should be but then how should it be really depends on the audience and who's going to actually be like like what action do I want you to take upon reading this information so it is it is important and you know, like sometimes information for the sake of information and awareness can be can be useful as well. But so often people don't really know why they need to know something. So kind of explaining that and being like, here's an impact that this could have on your organization, on your network, on a host, et cetera, can really help provide that initial context and insight and help drive decision-making based off of intelligence. So yes, it is really important and depends on the audience.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think like there's this, like, I think it's a buzzword. I hear it a lot, but it's a good one. This idea in cybersecurity of being like risk focused. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of times when we're talking about cybersecurity threats, you know, in whatever realm, it's so important to talk about like, yeah, like what the risk is. And I think that mm-hmm. is related to whether or not a piece of information is actionable. Like, if you don't know the risk or how, right. how, what, like, is there a risk? What is the risk to me specifically? It's impossible to action on.
0: Right. Like, risk based decision making. <laughs> like, yeah. it's a buzzword, <laughs> but it makes yeah. sense. It's a good one. <laughs> no, exposure. Totally and we do that every day of our lives. For the record, like, I think that. We don't ever think about that. We're living our life that we are kind of making those decisions. I think the COVID pandemic is a terrific example about how we are all living and breathing risk-based decision-making. Like I am changing my behavior as a result of a of an existing threat. I'm like being informed based on reports by experts of how I should be changing my behaviors and how I, what risk am I willing to take as a person that exists in a world that has, like, for example, for me, I have like I have asthma that increases my risk of like get, getting really sick from something like COVID, um, which, side note, I did not fun. Uh, <laughs> i sorry to hear that. I, I know it was it was it was bad. So I have increased <laughs> yeah. my own personal security as a result of a threat that I experienced. And so we're, we're, like, we're doing that every day, like, depending on where you are in, in, in cybersecurity, right, like, whether you are a CISO, whether you work in HR and are managing, like, LinkedIn profile, like, recruitment stuff, um, whether you are, right, the network defender, or whether you're just, like, an intelligence analyst, like, no matter where you are, like, things can impact you, and it's just a matter of effectively communicating how they can impact you and how you c- can or should change your behavior in response to um, um, the perceived threat.
1: We've talked a little about the need to educate people to get better at picking up on some of these threats. When you're talking about this notion of risk-based decision making, I guess having been, you know, a, a, an active member of the cybersecurity community, uh, really engaged in a lot of these conversations, I guess like if we want to step back and give ourselves a little scorecard, how are we doing? <laughs> are we are we getting better? Do you feel like the trajectory is there to really conquer some of these risks, or is it? Yes. Is it still just a constant threat? Are getting worse, 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 etc.
0: Um, I believe we are getting better. I think that there are there's a uh, a lot more awareness, for example, of the threat landscape. I think that the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, for example, was a uh, a big sort of flashpoint for general populist awareness of. Um, digital threats, specifically
1: ransomware. It knocked out half the fuel supplies to the East Coast. Right. For listeners who may not remember that one, hopefully you do. If you're in Georgia, I'm sure you do. Yeah,
0: did. right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, It's really interesting that, you know, for me personally, having covered this and been in this, and I'm like, yes, this has existed for years. I'm so glad it was like oil that got taken out that made people realize this and not like the hospitals and city governments and schools.
1: Jet fuel and gasoline you can find (laughs) elsewhere. Right. It
0: was like the meat packing plant and like oil happening is this confluence (laughs) of like two weeks. And it was like, oh, this is bad. But I do have to say, you know, for example, my sister, and hopefully she'll forgive me for using her as a reference. But she, she her life has been disrupted multiple times by ransomware attacks. Um, she works in the medical field, and she has experienced um, disruptions uh, to basically like administrative tools and stuff due to cyber attacks. She she was ex- impacted by the Colonial Pipeline attack that she couldn't drive her car basically because she couldn't get gas. And it's like these real world impacts of threats. I think that have um, really created this awareness overall. But I also think too that um, certainly the US government, but I know global uh, governments as well are really kind of focusing on this too, right? Um, I know that there's been increasing conversations about regulations, right? Like, okay, if we are driving a car and we're not wearing a seatbelt or we don't have an airbag or, you know, like these are these environmental regulations, right? Like our rivers don't have sewage in them constantly all the time anymore for a lot of the United States. And it's like, we have these like regulations that are put in place to protect people from bad things happening. And I think that that conversation is um, becoming increasingly noisy. um, And people are realizing like, okay, there are very real steps that, um, that organizations that people can take. I think from... Uh, cyber insurance perspective as well, right? Like, I know that there's a lot of of um, consideration as like should it, a is cyber insurance like a thing that should happen? B should people have like baseline levels of protection before they are insured um, to ins- to you know like pre existing conditions except for like for like businesses networks, right?
1: Well, to continue with the Ian example, it's going to be a lot harder for a lot of people in my hometown to find insurance after Mm -hmm. this, you know, it's it's it can similar things can happen, you know, uh, with with the cybersecurity world for Mm -hmm. sure.
0: So I think it is getting better. Um, And I think that overall, um, more people are getting aware. And I also think, too, that the number of journalists covering cybersecurity has increased, which means that newsrooms are paying attention to this, which means that readers are becoming aware of this. And I think overall, it's a very good thing. And I think we are getting better at effectively communicating threats to the general public as well. There's a, a lot that we need to do that could improve, but I think overall things are getting better.
1: So we asked this of all our guests, we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, what's something that we wouldn't know about you by looking at your LinkedIn?
0: Oh, hmm. that's a good question. Well, I used to be a dancer, Side note, that was, that's something, but.
1: What kind of dancer? Hip
0: hop, <laughs> actually. Um, <laughs> back in the day, and I actually used to teach kids, um teach kids hip hop in an after school program, but.
1: That sounds adorable. It was was (laughs)
0: great. It was great. But I do have to actually give a shout out to something that I currently do. I'm a volunteer with Achilles International. And uh, that's an organization that pairs up sighted runners with visually impaired athletes. And we run around D.C. every week. It's really great. And yeah, I don't know if people would know that about me, but I I am a runner. I do talk about that. Um, But yeah, Achilles. I volunteer with Achilles, which has just been the most wonderful thing that I have done since moving to D.C., That is so cool. That sounds really rewarding.
1: Fighting cyber crime by day. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Running at night. I know that that's like my whole personality is like cyber crime and running. I should expand my horizons a little (laughs) bit
1: maybe. Reintroduce dance. That's not the direction I was going there. (laughs) Yeah. Reintroduce dance. No. Well, that's, that's really wonderful. And we really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been great talking with uh, some of these really important subjects with you.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This has been super fun. Does your penetration testing meet compliance requirements?
3: Does it adhere to the most rigorous security standards on the market today? Now you can find SYNAC on the FedRAMP marketplace for all of your agency's security testing needs. SYNAC recently received moderate in-process status from FedRAMP, meaning that even more US departments, agencies, and contractors can utilize SYNAC's global network of trusted and vetted security researchers for on-demand around-the-clock pen testing. Learn more at SYNAC.com. That's S Y N A C K dot com.
2: If you like today's episode, please give us a five star rating and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It'll really help us get noticed on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, you can share this episode with your friends and make sure to check out all of the other fascinating people that we've already interviewed. We're also open to your suggestions. If you know someone that we should be talking to, drop us a line at we'reinpodcast at cynac.com. That's we'reinpodcast at S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. There is a red-tailed hawk outside. Oh, oh that's so cool.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. It just landed in the tree. Love it. Uh, <laughs> I'm totally sorry. No, no, not I, a I should problem. probably close my window, my window when I'm recording the podcast. Oh wait, the, 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 window,
1: podcast. the window is open? Don't let it fly no. in. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a chaotic interruption. I've, I've never seen
0: this. That's first. cool. So this I love cool. that's
1: one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite birds, actually.